For July 2nd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 522. Cocktail party knowledge of the Highlander. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together, talking about the things we love. Everything we love, uh, we love more when we share it together. I'm Matt Rather. I'm joined by my good friends, Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hey, Matthew. So it's no secret that the overthinkers met in college. We all went to Yale together some years ago, 20 years ago, almost. We were, I mean, I, I was showing up, uh, I was showing up in college. It's sort of amazing to think that, that that much time has passed and that we have been friends for, for that long. And we got a little bit of news today, uh, sad news this weekend about someone we knew back in college. And so, um, it started us, it started us thinking. Let, let me back up and tell you what I mean. We got news today that a man named, uh, Robert Boulogne, who is a Catholic priest and was the chaplain at Yale and, and still is the chaplain at Yale, though he is, is, uh, very sick. Um, they, they said with, with characteristic understatement, uh, they made an announcement that, um, uh, suffering from brain trum- trum- tumor and, and he's been treated with several rounds of, of chemotherapy and other treatments, uh, and that the doctors have advised that further treatment will not improve his condition. Uh, and so it was a, a sort of sad moment, um, a sad bit of news to get from someone that we all knew, uh, in college and, uh, and someone who was maybe in the position of, uh, of a mentor. You know, I don't know if you guys have, uh, uh, stories about Father Bob. Um, but, uh, I surely do. Pete, do you have one that, that comes to mind? Sure. I think that you, I think you both might have been a bit closer to him than I was, but I did like him a lot. And I do remember he would talk in a very grounded way about, the kinds of lessons that you can take from, in our case, Catholicism, religion in general, old old literature, uh, and, and sort of old holy literature, and kind of how do I you apply it to your own life? And he was a big fan of the um, the metaphorical relationship between the idea of sin and the idea of archery. <laughs> uh, unsurprisingly, <laughs> this, this was a Yale priest, or the, he is a Yale priest, right? Yeah. And uh, for, and as such, he would explain, you know, that the word in Greek for sin is similar to the word, or the same as the word for missing a target in archery. And so if you can think of, uh, rather than necessarily like a, a going against a rule or breaking a rule, thinking about it as kind of not quite meeting up with the standard that's kind of set for you or that you are the sort of state that you ought to be in. Uh, it, it's an interesting way to think about the effect of your actions on you. I think that when you're thinking about good behavior and bad behavior, it's easy to think of it merely in a sort of punishment paradigm. But I think he did a pretty good job of articulating better than me uh, better than I, at articulating how falling short or wide of the behavior that might be right uh, is going to damage, is bad for you as well as for other people, right? And as well as for the world. 
yeah. right? It's so it's all kind of connected, and it's all kind of. Uh, uh, part of the same general idea. Anyway, Matt, you could probably flesh this out a little bit more. Sure. Well, no, I think I think you've said it. I remember a different, uh, another related teaching on uh, on sort of sin that he gave once, and he talked about the problem in Catholicism of uh, of Italian of continental European jurisprudence <laughs> versus Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence, yep. and that uh, in a lot of the times the Church says things in continental ways that we interpret in Anglo-Saxon ways, uh, and that that is. Is, uh, you know, that that is um, bad. Like, for example, uh, if you've ever seen a no smoking sign in Rome, uh, <laughs> all the people standing around smoking, you'll understand the kind of difference that he meant. The, the, the no smoking sign represents our highest aspirations, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we don't, but we don't always live in our, in our highest aspirations, though we might, uh, we might try to. Mark, did you have a, uh, uh, did you have a story about Bob that, that uh, you care to share? Sure. Um, uh, Father Bob, I remember having a great sense of humor. He was not like a dour, serious man. And that's one of the main reasons why he was so beloved um, by students. Um, but he did, uh, you know, was, was not afraid to uh, drop some serious uh, advice and, and, and charge his students with some serious thought every once in a while. Um, oh, one thing that he did to me once is uh, said, hey, you know, when you get back home, look this up in the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 48. I'm like, okay, sure. I'm like, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? I'm turning this over my head. And I get home and I crack open my Bible and uh, I'll, I'll read you the King James version of it just because it sounds more weighty that way. Not that it's the best translation. Side note, we should do an entire uh, podcast episode devoted to Bible translations. Um, but anyway, here it is. Uh, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Um, it's, uh, kind of another way, way of saying, I guess, uh, with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> in a certain way. Uh, but, uh, you know, he is saying that to students who come to campus with a lot of, let's call it privilege with expectations and everything like that. And he's basically saying, you know, like you've got this now go make something great of it. Um, and those words have kind of stuck with me ever since, uh, in no small way i'm not going to say that i have gone off and done great and amazing things i mean you know i uh, i operate a little government operation to um, the best of my ability and sometimes i succeed and sometimes i fail but um i'm trying man I, you know this, this priest like 20 years ago told me to do this thing and i'm trying it man so i uh i have one as as well that that's a great example that sort of illustrates both uh both the kind of um sly humor and the the seriousness that that characterized father bob um i i actually went to work at the catholic center at yale for three years after graduating from college um for a variety of reasons, but it it just so happened that the story of my life falls out that 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 was where I went to work, and so you know uh, after having dealt with Father Bob as a uh, as a sort of aspirational mentor or kind of spiritual leader for for the, all the time I was in college, I then dealt with him as a boss, and that you know I was twenty two, uh, full of myself overconfident cocky right like uh which i think amused him a lot and sometimes grated on him and and i had the normal sort of i don't know ups and downs with a boss that you'd expect of 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 someone that that age and but i i remember always one one 
thing that he did uh that that has stuck with me and that i've kind of actually really taken on and and um made a practice in my life a lot more than the even some of the spiritual stuff in there um in there meaning in the church uh which was that i you know we had something i i was an administrator responsible for like running special events and things like this and so i once kind of came into a meeting with a full head of steam and started you know talking over my agenda and action items and he said whoa 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 matt hold on stop stop people first how are you and made me stop and sort of engage uh as and slow down um and i i sort of remember that now now that i am a boss myself right like people first you know and that that's uh i don't know that's that's been almost the a the most profound lesson i can think that that uh, that came from him. So, you know, um, Father Bob, I'm not sure if you if you listen to this, but, uh, you know, from the three of us, sincerely, God bless you. All right, let's Indeed. talk a little bit about mentors, because that's what this... Uh, that's what this news sort of awakened in me. And the, the whole topic of like people even thinking back, getting news about someone who you knew decades ago, who was an important figure in your life and who sort of taught you something, uh, at a time when you're just so open to learn when you're young, right? And that, uh, that this is, a uh, probably a phenomenon that that exists in a lot of people's lives um mentors of various kinds and and definitely exists in um it definitely exists in literature and film in in artistic representation of all kind so uh pete i i think i gather uh that you have uh, at your fingertips, a model of the or the or mentor, the the mentor to and all other mentors, and I just I'm I'm waiting uh, in suspense with bated breath. Can you please uh, tell us who the most mentory mentor of all is? Well, if you're suggesting that there can be only one, yeah. <laughs> then I would like to refer refer the panel in something of a surge in levity to the 1986 film Highlander, which I hope that there are people listening to the podcast to have seen this movie it's becoming less and less of a piece of cultural currency as the years wear on however it did win the academy award for best film ever made according to uh talladega nights the legend of ricky bobby so it's got that going for it but anyway in the movie highlander none other than sean connery plays a wonderful mentor figure ramirez right the he's the metallurgist to the court of charles v he's an ancient egyptian he's been alive forever and he's a dashing and debonair swordsman and he teaches is a kind of uh, Scottish roughneck the rules of the Highlander universe and how to kind of not only how to survive, but also kind of how to think about yourself and your situation, how to relate to other people. You guys have seen Highlander, right? I would hope so. I'm afraid to admit I haven't actually. Oh man, this is you, Mark. This is a fair to middling movie with a giant legend associated with it. Uh, <laughs> you're, saying, you mean you're saying it's right up my alley, right? Exactly. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna let Mark uh, hang out there by himself. Me too. I I have not seen it. You know. Wait, 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 wait. We've been recording podcasts for more than ten years together, <laughs> on which I I must have mentioned the Highlander like at least twenty times. More than more than and, one. I, I have cocktail party knowledge of the Highlander in that I can make a joke that ends, you know, there can be only one. 
And you've seen none of the Highlander movies, of which there are many. No, uh, uh, I have. I have seen only none. They. they- they have they include among them a strong candidate for the worst movie ever made, Highlander Two: The Quickening, uh, in which they entirely retcon the story of the first movie and make it about aliens, uh, which only works if you're Dragon Ball. But anyway, I'm getting outside the point. <laughs> King. Okay, so for those of you who are pretending to know Highlander, let me help you pretend better. Okay, so Christopher Lambert is a Scottish sort of warrior. You get the sense his heart. He's more of a lover than a fighter, but he'll fight when he's necessary. He dies in battle. He he wakes up, right? He, he, why am I alive? And everyone else is dead. This makes no sense. And he wanders around for a while. And, you know, long story short, he runs into this flamboyant Sean Connery figure, played by Sean Connery, who informs him that he is an immortal and that he uh, will live forever, provided that nobody chops his head off and that there are other immortals. And those immortals are all trying to chop each other's heads off because there has been a promise of uncertain provenance of some sort of prize for the last immortal who is left on Earth. And the movie then jumps from the 1500s through to the 1980s and back and forth and back and forth as it continues to do through Highlander 2, Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, uh, Highlander Endgame, right? Like the Highlander television series, the Highlander the Raven, the spinoff from the Highlander television series, the Highlander anime movie. There's a lot of Highlander out there. And a lot of the attraction of it is its period pieces where you can go back in time and see like, oh, this guy meets somebody from the Civil War. Let's go back to the Civil War where they all wear costumes and see what they all did. But the point being that this world has a number of highly counterintuitive rules. And then chief among them being that sword fighting shall remain relevant, like all the time, forever. Right. And you should always wear carry a sword because you might be called upon to ritualistically duel someone. You can't go to holy ground. It's forbidden by the rules of the contest. Your swords will explode. Bad things will happen, et cetera, et cetera. And so the whole rest of the movie is framed uh, through Connor McLeod's you know, experience with this contest and these rules and the other people that are pursuing it versus his attempt to, you know, quote unquote, lead a normal life. Right. He wants to have a girlfriend. He wants to collect art. He wants to have a nice apartment in New York. As you know, these things are well nigh impossible, though in the 80s they were significantly easier. And so uh, <laughs> it's um, the point being um, those of you who have not seen The Highlander, I guess you couldn't necessarily answer this question as intuitively I can, but I want you to imagine what the movie The Highlander, with all these rules and all this sword fighting, is like if he never has a mentor, right? If, like, Sean Connery never shows up and says, hey, Connor McCloud, I know you're confused and scared. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to get a sword, and you're going to try to have people not chop your head off, and then you're going to chop their heads off. And if you're looking to get all angsty and worried about it, try to consider the fact that being alive for a long time has certain advantages. Yeah, it's fun to have fun if you if you if you like to know how. However, Dr. Seuss said it, but like eat apples, party, have a good time, right? Like like don't lose your sense of humanity. But uh, but, you know, be aware that at some point down the road, somebody is going to first duel me and kill me and then duel you and attempt to kill you. And then you'll avenge me by killing him. And that's kind of how the world is going to work. Uh, You instead have a story of like a scared, poverty stricken illiterate who like wanders from place to place, uh, probably dies like many times from a variety of means like starvation, falling off cliffs, drowning. Right. Like uh, there's all sorts of characters throughout the extended Highlander universe who never really figure out how to cope with the reality of being in this very, very high concept sci-fi thing. And, uh, <laughs> and, as, and, and their lives are, are, are quite twisted and damaged as a result. And, and you take for granted watching the Highlander that the protagonists of the Highlander and Connor McLeod then goes on to mentor Duncan McLeod in the 
syndicated television spinoff um, uh, that that like they're these blessed fake people, right? They're doing OK. You take for granted that everybody who is a protagonist is going to know how it works. And and one of the dark secrets of Highlander is that this is true in real life, right? Like that uh, that you're going to go into situations where the there are, if not strict rules, then certainly like really really elegant shorthand that will really really help you in a given situation, perhaps even over a long period of time, such as like that one scripture that Father Bob gave to Mark that Mark now uses like in his professional life, right? Like there are these sorts of moments where you can get these elegant sorts of relations about the world from somebody who is in a position to impart this to you in sort of a trusting way if they earn that trust even better uh and 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 let's not trivialize like in in the movies there's a lot made about sort of the hero's journey and about how kind of like meeting the mentor is a critical step in the hero's journey but let's not trivialize how like in the real world having a mentor who can explain to you in some elegant way some sort of framework for understanding some sort of social or professional or natural situation can be like really valuable and not just in terms of helping you succeed, but in terms of keeping you sane and like helping you relate to it and helping you stay human in this context. Uh, I mean, that, that's what I was going to say in terms of like Mimi is not the ideal mentor, uh, you know, because he's got he's got the peacock feathers and the crazy hat and stuff. Um, and he does die. But, you know, spoilers, if the mentor dies is not really a spoiler. Um, but uh, but that's one notion. Right. And, and, and now I want to sort of open this up to both like mentors, fictional and real uh, in terms of having a way having a sort of elegant way of understanding the world. Uh, you know, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda are like pretty obvious, but I'm going to like lateral this ball sideways. I'm going to like allow myself to get killed by the Kurgan here and let you guys run with this one. Uh, if anything inspires you about this, like thinking about Ramirez and the Highlander. Well, uh, I think you're absolutely right. The thing that came, the thing that came about the, the sort of lack of mentors and kind of what that can do and that that might be a more normal, a more average situation, right? Mm -hmm. The average expectable situation than like really getting a great mentor who's going to like show you the ropes. Um, it, it made me think of workplaces and sort of coming into workplaces places and not understanding uh, not understanding what kind of how things actually work right like uh who the actual power centers are what mm -hmm. is and isn't sort of within the the workplace overton window is essentially what <laughs> what genre of workplace are you in right mm -hmm. are are you in a single elimination tournament style <laughs> you know or uh are you in a sort of people first right kinder gentler uh yeah. well, well, welcome to newport industries here we are born to be kings we're the princes of the universe here we belong <laughs> yes exactly right and that that like uh you know how how useful it is to have that um, how useful it is to have that knowledge and how many times in life I, I found myself, and I'm sure you have also, right? Uh, without that and kind of flailing a little bit, trying to get my bearings in an, in an unfamiliar situation. Um, keeping yeah, I would add to that, yeah. like, you know, no one goes through their entire professional career at all times. I think very few people go through their entire professional careers with a stable mentor there at the ready the entire way, just kind of like, you know, carefully, you know, uh, uh, charting a path for you, right? We all pass through periods where we've got one and we don't have one or we've got one who might be, uh, who seems promising at the beginning, uh, but then turns out to be offering bad advice. And then we pick up another one that, that seems good. So 
uh, and that just only serves to like help uh, increase your appreciation of having the mentor. Um, I can say at least that's been the case for me. Um, I, I, I thankfully never had to, uh, you know, have my head chopped off or, or, or chop off someone else's head. Uh, but I, I feel like I can relate to this Highlander business, Pete. Um, thank you for framing <laughs> it in this way. You know, actually on that, I thought that um, prior to you relaying me to me the plot of the Highlander, I thought where you're going with this was that um, uh, the, the the main character would have to uh, uh, surpass his mentor and chop off Sean Connery's head. Because the oh. whole thing about there can be only one led, led me to think like the whole thing was just like a, a total battle royale, like a free-for-all where uh, there w- didn't actually offer any space for a proper nurturing, mentoring relationship. But it sounds like that is really quite not the case at all. Well, it's it's interrogated many times through ah, the Highlander okay. fiction. Like, is are you is it possible to have a stable relationship with another person who is locked in this kind of war of all against all? And, and I mean, and I think generally speaking, the protagonists come down on the side of yes, and the antagonists come down on the side of no. And and you could see it in that sense as kind of a metaphor for socializing in the age of capitalism, right? It's like, well, can we have meaningful relationships if all of our relationships are take place in the context of this sort of grand contest in this in this sort of like war of mutual destruction? And the protagonist in The Highlander would say, of course you can. You know, I mean, you you'll have to have a certain amount of uh, kind of. what F. Scott Fitzgerald asked holding two ideas that can contradict each other in your head at the same time, but it's possible. And the villains would be like, no, you need to give in to your hatred and, and all that other right. stuff. Um, right. The, the workplace analogy is that, you know, like a, a, a backstabbing uh, environment where people feel like to get ahead, they got to trash someone else so they can climb on top of them versus, you know, something that has more mutually nurturing. Um, and so another question I have uh, the, the plot of Highlander is what is this prize? What are they striving for? Right. Is it oh. for CEO of Highlander Inc? Uh, or, or, <laughs> so you want to know the ending of the first Highlander movie is what you're saying, which yes, is what yes, they reveal I, yes, what the I prize do. is. To enhance my cocktail party level <laughs> knowledge of this movie. Okay. Now, granted, I have not seen the first Highlander movie more than three times. Uh, so, and I've seen the series a lot, so I may make some sort of small pedantic, uh, error in this, but the prize that is one at the end of the first Highlander movie is first of all, you lose your immortality, uh, which is important. Oh, thank God. Yeah. (laughs) The idea that like your immortality is actually kind of a curse because you don't get to live a normal life. Uh, the other thing that you lose is as an immortal, you are infertile. And so you lose your infertility and you have the ability to have children. And so you trade in this sort of warrior immortality for like a peaceful mortality, but that is immortalized through like your relationship with your kids. And so the Highlander can finally settle down and have a family. And then the other thing that you get is a sort of universal empathy. You get the ability to kind of hear and feel the thoughts and feelings of the people around you uh, and to sort of in that sense kind of embrace the world. Uh, so it's interesting that like the triumph for being the absolute best at murdering everyone is like a prize that someone really dedicated to murder would like not the least bit be interested in. But uh, so it's kind of like a in that sense, it could be it could have turned out horribly ironically if the Kurgan had won. But uh, but no, it's this idea that the real prize in all of this is life and love and companionship. This is then taken away in Highlander 2 by the aliens, but we like to pretend the Highlander <laughs> 2 didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, and so on and so forth. But but that's that's the sort of the real the real kind of like uh, above the fold headline is the the prize for uh, winning the contest of the immortals is to be a mortal, which is better than being an immortal. So it's sort of an Achilles and Odysseus moment, like in the Odyssey, where he's like, look, the best day of being alive is better 
the worst day of being alive is better than the best day of being dead. I would love to be alive. It's awesome. And in that sense, the the immortals are sort of like the, the, the dead heroes of ages past who still sort of walk the earth in kind of constant contact combat with each other, not constant contact, constant combat with each other. <laughs> uh, and that is not, not really a lot. They're yeah. in constant contact with each other, just sending emails, yeah. you know, they're in Salesforce with each other yeah. is what they're doing. <laughs> I like that. But I no, like you the... don't get to be CEO of Highlander Inc. And sell all of the imitation dragon katanas on qbc at three o'clock in the morning no you don't get to do that this well i mean you sort of find uh, you sort of find it's interesting in real in real world mentor relationships one one way that it can go wrong with without any bad intention from anyone is that the uh the mentor misreads the genre of the the story that you're in right mm-hmm. that is to say you know when i was your age you just would call the you would call the offices of nbc and they would give you a a, a late night talk show or something right. like that, you know, and, and it's, well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way anymore. That's a pyramid with yeah. very steep sides and even entry well, to like, it is, is, is governed by a kind of battle Royale. And so it's, it's important like in life, not only to have from periodically to have mentors, that is to say, to have people who know more than you, who can clue you in about what's really going on, about the kind of the, the things that you don't even see, kind of the matrix, right? Like what Morpheus is one, right? Like the, the matrix around you, the, the forces shaping phenomena that you don't even see. Um, but it's also important to have the right one at the right time. Time for the right sort of reason. You know what I mean? Mm, I hear what you're saying. I had a mentor once professionally who had, and he was, he measured, he, um, he's more a manager than a mentor, but he served, he took the role of mentor, even though his main role was that of manager. And he, uh, he was remote. And so he would, uh, he would, we only really talked by phone and very rarely in person, but he heard stories that I didn't dress nicely enough in the office. And so he lent me a book on how to dress myself properly. Which was like both useful and kind of hurtful and offensive. And so and it was all about like different styles of formal and informal dress and how to wear a suit and things like that. And of course, now my office has a casual dress policy, right? Like like the the now I learned that knowledge just in time for it to become broadly irrelevant over the subsequent decade as because uh, it was so important in that one moment. But, you know, as we didn't know, of course, that the whole world was going to change. It was not going to matter whether you knew how to you know get five suits of slightly different colors and rotate them and dry clean them and such. Yeah. So that kind of thing. Not not to go off on a tangent on this, but it's down to like the level of like, uh, you know, this particular style of dress shoe should match for this occasion type of thing, or is it more general? Like, oh wow, that's no. It was like this is the difference between smart casual and casual, and this is the difference between formal and like business casual, and this is when you wear this kind of jacket, and this is where you wear that kind of jacket. I mean, it was a book. It was great. You know, it was good to know. It's good knowledge. Uh, I would recommend learning about it, if only because clothing has the same sort of systematic. Uh, classification system that cars does or cars do, which makes them kind of pleasurable to learn about, right? Because it's like, oh, look at all the rules, right? I can learn all the things and there's patterns and my brain craves patterns, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Now, now to really take us on a tangent, this reminds me of a strange mentor relationship. So I would really love you guys to help me decode here in in the sort of framework that we're building out here. I am, of course, referring to My Fair Lady, (laughs) <laughs> Eliza, Eliza Doolittle and Professor Henry Higgins, right? Who, of course, now, um, if you're one of the few people who are not familiar with the story of My Fair Lady, right? Professor Henry Higgins, this highfalutin uh, professor of phonetics, um, takes a gutter snipe, Eliza Doolittle, who talks like this, um, and turns her into a lady. 
And is there a mentor in terms of social graces and fashion as well? And there's like all interesting homosexual subtext there in terms of uh, of, of the, uh, uh, Higgins and his uh, male companion, <laughs> Colonel Pickering, dressing her up like a doll. Um, but uh, that sort of like the first half of that story is about how that is sort of a constructive uh, mentoring relationship. Well, not certainly without its uh, big problems, uh, but, you know, it's like goal oriented and that they're. Uh, trying to mentor her to pass her off as a lady, which is ostensibly what it is that she wants. But uh, the flip side of it, at the end of by the end, you realize that no, it's not really uh, quite a mentor relationship. It was, uh, um, uh, uh, lack of a better word, exploitative in a certain way. And that um, the you know once she is once lies Doolittle has taken uh, what she needed from her from from him, then she moves on and does her her own thing. Um, so good mentor, yeah. bad mentor, a little bit of both. <laughs> Like uh, for very briefly what it is that she needed and then became something else. I mean, I would posit that a mentorship. So the the functionality of a mentorship is somebody giving somebody else, imparting in somebody else information and guidelines and behaviors so that they can fit a particular sort of role. Uh, And I think the best mentorships or maybe the classic mentorships that we think of as positive are a person looking, an older person looking to a younger person and giving them the tools to take their own place or supplant them or surpass them. And it's related to parenting and it's about the passage of generations and the kind of gradual improvement of humanity as a whole, uh, I think is kind of what that kind of mentorship is. But there are kinds of functionally identical relationships wherein you are, you start grooming somebody for a role that isn't your role, that is for a different role, right? And, and, and your opinion of that role is going to inform how you treat that person and what you shape them for. Like in Pygmalion, he's not making a statue of himself. He's making a statue of something he wants to bone, right? And like, and that's, that's, I mean, that's a crude way of saying it. I'm talking about the Greek myth here, right? Where he like, he makes the statue and he falls in love with the statue, the sculptor, right? And then the statue gets life breathed into it. And this is supposed to be what? I guess good, bad. Actually, I'll ask you guys. I'm not. I'm my my Ovid is not fresh. Is the ancient Greek myth of Pygmalion <laughs> oh God, you supposed gotta th- to be? You got to throw it out, Pete. You got to <laughs> just th- th- really like don't leave Ovid in your refrigerator past it its sell by date. <laughs> it smells like geese and laurel trees. Um, what is what is is Pygmalion supposed to be a positive story or a negative story? Uh, are we supposed to feel good about the ancient Greek myth of Pygmalion or bad about it? Well, uh, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think like I think like a lot of those they they it illustrates a kind of intractable um an intractable problem, right? To a certain extent it's a be careful what you wish for kind of story. Uh to a certain extent it's like uh uh it's a wouldn't it be nice kind of story and to a certain extent it's a uh um like uh what uh what was like each man kills the things he loves kind of story or something or like the the uh you know it's a a story about kind of not not the futility but the the kind of um sociopathy the kind of yeah. in the kind of innate sociopathy of being an artist you know Right, right. And so yeah. you could you could see something like this. Women get a raw deal. I mean, again, it would be great to have a woman here to say this for her own for her, her own perspective, because saying it from our perspective is not the best. But I would say women get a raw deal when it comes to mentors and definitely in fiction and on presumably in real life, because so many of the kind of senior skilled people are men and they don't necessarily see the women as people that can come up in their own image 
but instead see them as people that they can make use of or exploit. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's let's keep the, uh, going down this road here before we leave My Fair Lady uh, entirely here uh, for a few things. Matt, you missed an opportunity to say uh, instead of wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be lovely? Oh, right. <laughs> right. There you go. And, and, and the other important thing is that uh, it, it, it in My Fair Lady is briefly brought up, like or at least Eliza brings up this idea that like, well, I could do this too, right? I will, I can go off and be a phonetics teacher and teach other people. And Henry Higgins is repelled by this idea, right? Right. Uh, th- that is not what he set out to do at all. He set up because you know, it could you know create uh, something to bone and kind of to put it in, the, in your words, Matt. Yeah. Uh, and what the, it turns the, the around, Pete's, uh, Pete's uh, words, Pete's Matt words. Yeah, yeah, Blame exactly. Pete's, Pete's words. Mine, mine would have been cruder by far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, all that is to say that uh, it, it it fits this framework. If uh, my friend lady fits the framework very well as you're, as you're describing it, Pete. Um, so yes, uh, women. In film or in 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 culture, often get uh, the raw deal when it comes to these mentorship type of yeah. relationships, right? Like let's list a couple, right? Uh, the bride from Kill Bill, whose mentor is uh, tries to murder her on her wedding day because he can't allow her to have any sort of independent happiness, right? Uh, Katniss Everdeen, who is trapped in a endless nightmare of all sorts of bizarre exploitations from everybody who tries to take control of her life. Uh, Ripley from Alien, who is betrayed in every movie, (laughs) who's literally has her, her like, her, literally, the government is in her uterus trying to, like, pull out the aliens and exploit her for that. And they're trying to train her and and send her on missions and and so on and so forth. Uh, There's just, there's, like, so many women with mentors who just really, really hurt them. And it's it's an archetype, I think, at this point. I mean, even if you want to think about more recent stuff, Fast and the Furious 6 is largely concerned with this kind of relationship, right? Remember when... Uh, when uh, Letty has amnesia and then Gaston from the live action Beauty and the Beast becomes her sort of surrogate dom and starts train not not in the sexual sense, but in the uh, in the Fast and the Furious sense uh, and starts like sort of grooming her and training her to be part of his gang. But it's revealed that in his crew, you know, people are interchangeable and you're interchangeable. And it'd be a shame if I had to murder you and like leave you in a gutter. Right. And it's it's so it's like I would say that uh, in a lot of these sort of kung fu kind of movies, uh, you know, Star Wars-y, uh, Western kind of hero movies where there's a female character, it's not uncommon for them to have a male mentor who totally betrays them. Uh, and and I feel like that's as much a part of the culture. Oh, Furiosa from Fury Road is another big one, right, where her, her mentor is Immortan Joe, who is a monster. And, uh, and her kind of, her coming into her own has to do with rejecting the mentor as opposed to accepting the mentor. I guess what, that's, that's choices you have in life but, as well as in uh so, in so fiction. here's one i mean i i actually i want to i want to say I, I sort of recommend unreservedly um hannah gatsby's netflix comedy special nanette uh where she uh she's an australian tasmanian um stand-up comic who talks about comedy talks about art history which is what her her degree is in and does that kind of reading of like female muses my fair lady style and the kind of the the violent implications of of this norm right in yeah. society and like just to say that like someone you know someone who can say it in her own words better than we could say it that that is one place where you can definitely get it in a powerful way uh, be be mentally prepared when when you turn on <laughs> that stand-up comedy special it's upsetting uh in times at times but it it is upsetting 
frankly, in the way that that women have to withstand on every day. So uh, yeah. don't be don't be uh, so boys. Don't be so tender hearted about it. <laughs> dive in and dive in and and take it. Um, yeah. But the the here's here's one right. Do you do you all remember the classic film The Devil Wears Prada? Sure. Yes. Right. It won the Oscar for best film ever made, right? right. It totally, <laughs> it totally did. Uh, there are actually, I feel like there is a very good movie and a very bad movie in, in Devil Wears Prada, right? Like, and the very good movie is about this relationship, this mentoring relationship between Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway. And the very bad movie is about a woman who, uh, you know, who tries the professional world and decides that what she wants is a, uh, you know, conventionally feminine role following her loser boyfriend for his job out of, out of town and, and, uh, you know, eventually becoming a wife and a mother. My reading of the devil's wears Prada is, uh, ungenerous and, and maybe a little bit jaundiced, but, you know, is, right, is, um, Meryl Streep a bad mentor in that movie because she's so cruel all the time, right? So is, That is to say, what are the characteristics? What are the the emotional characteristics in terms of the kind of the music that goes along with the song and dance of of mentorship? Because she gives her fantastic information about the kind of world that she's entered, the world of you know high fashion publishing uh, that she did not that she did not know before, and that she was frankly a little uh, derisive about, um, dismissive of, and and. you know, kind of arrogantly superior to. There's a great scene in which, um, uh, uh, in which, you know, she, she sort of laughs at a meeting that she's taking notes on. Meryl Streep stops everything and, uh, d- you know, does a long, elaborate, you know, slightly sadistic takedown of her, um, in a way, though, that that really drives the point home that, like, uh, you know, she, she points out the the blue sweater that she's wearing and says, that's not blue, that's cerulean. Now, I think, you know, and she starts naming designers. I think, you know, I don't know, Tom Ford had or Mark J. I don't know. I don't know designers. But she goes through this long lineage of, like, the first high fashion designer. And then it got out into the diffusion lines. And then it got out into the old Navy stores where, you know, where you picked it up, thinking that you were a rebel when, in fact, that that sweater was chosen for you by the people in this room. And, uh, and it's, it's absolutely right. It's good information and it's cruel and humiliating. Right. So, so is that, does that make her, does that make her a bad mentor or, uh, am I, am I right about, um, the devil wears Prada? She's a very good mentor and, uh, she's, she's wrong to go with, um, she's wrong to go with entourage bro from entourage at the end of the movie to move from New York to Boston and start his failing restaurant. So I've not seen The Devil Wears Prada. So we could do a, an exchange someday. Well, we, where uh, I for, watched... ten, for 10 years, Pete, <laughs> we have been podcasting. <laughs> Wait a minute. When did The Devil Wears Prada come out? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I'm pretty Hold sure on, it wasn't out. 1986. No, it was 2006. It was two years before we started. So, yeah, I have no excuse. So we'll do an exchange where I'll, you'll watch Highlander with me and I'll watch Devil Wears Prada with you. And we'll get it sorted. <laughs> and we can invite anyone else who needs to catch up on either of those two cinematic masterpieces. Um, interesting. That's an interesting question. Uh, certainly she's a bad teacher, right? Because a teacher has the responsibility of not just 
uh, providing the opportunity and the information for the student to learn, but for also creating in the student the sort of inspiration and energy to do the learning. And and this is the difference between Sean Connery in Highlander and Sean Connery in Finding Forrester, because in Highlander, Connor McLeod is a willing student and, and is sort of an urgent need in his situation, wherein he is like he does not need to be inspired all that much as to the importance of what is happening. Uh, whereas in Finding Forrester, when he's teaching the kid how to write. Uh, you know, from the wrong, the bad neighborhood, and it's very racially charged, and it has to do with prep school, politics, and stuff. Um, there's the question of, well, how is the, why is this kid going to be interested in this thing at all, uh, right? And and so in that sense, I would say that Meryl Streep is a bad teacher in that movie because she doesn't impart in Anne Hathaway like a growth mindset that she ought to learn by like not validating her attempts to understand. I would say. But but if a mentor's goal is more to, like, help a person take their own role, if she, if that sort of cruelty was necessary for her to have that job. But again, you could argue it probably isn't necessary, but who knows? I mean, I've never worked in fashion. Um, certainly in my experience in the corporate world, the idea that you have to be really mean is mostly been proven out to be false. Um, you have to be tough, but mean is actually overrated. Um, but I don't know. I mean, do you think it's, it's, a, I mean, good, it's a good question? Go for it, Mark. Yeah. I, my, my take on that is that, like when you're uh, in a position to give advice and you do it in an attack mode, um, you run the risk of the person who's on the receiving end of that to reject it right. uh, as, as exactly what it is, an attack. And that uh, in the movies and something like um, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, you know, that's important for character development where the character rejects the advice but ultimately comes around to it. But the problem is in real life, oftentimes people just reject the advice full stop and don't right, come around right. to it. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, but the, but what's going on here was an important part of mentorship is uh, the humbling aspect of teaching, um, mm. taking someone who thinks they know what it is that they, they know and then breaking them down in a, in a constructive way so that they can learn on uh, more constructive terms, like you were talking about, Pete. And I'm thinking then of, uh, of you know, just to fall back on our archetypical um, mentor example of Yoda and Luke Skywalker, right? Um, where there's a lot of this going on. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, I want to tell, so, yeah, tell yeah, yeah. a quick story before, because I, th- I feel like this will take up the rest of the episode because <laughs> there's so yeah. much, there's so much to think. Um, uh, speaking, speaking of this sort of being a teacher, uh, being a mentor, kindness, cruelty, sort of, um, niceness and things like this. I, did I ever tell the story about, about the tour I took of the Navy ship once? I took a tour of a Navy ship, uh, related to a play that I, that I was yeah. doing that had to you do. Yeah. Yeah. That had to do with it. And, um, we were being uh, uh, given this tour by one of the chiefs and, and kind of at the culminating moment um, as the, the flags were being lowered, we were uh, sort of at the last thing we were going to see the, what is it called? The retreat of the colors or something like that. And where there's this sort of ceremony, it's pretty dramatic because throughout the entire base, like on all the ships at the same time, they do this thing. Um, Taps, I think is played over the, uh, over the, the, loudspeaker of the whole thing. Anyway, so we get there, you know, and he'd sort of proudly, you know, this, his uh, sailors are going to uh, do this this thing, this amazing ritual is kind of the last part of our day and no one's there. No one's standing <laughs> at the flagpole ready to uh, perform this duty. And so he cottons on very quickly to what's happening, sprints 
to the flagpole to be there in time to lower the flag himself or, you know, and then I think someone else comes at the thing and they do, they do the ceremony together. Uh, and, uh, it goes away and he comes back. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a jerk. So I'm, I'm say, wow, chief, someone's going to get chewed out tonight. Huh? Uh, and he said, no, not tonight. Uh, if you yell at someone when you're angry, you're just a source of volume and that's not useful. But if you yell at someone when you're not angry, you're a source of information with volume. And that is very useful in teaching someone something and making sure that they'll never, uh, ever do it again. And so like that, you know, that, that showed, I think, like, just a kind of profound understanding of the teacher student dynamic um, in terms of, in terms of like, you can't unload on people, right? Like you can't enact your own, your own S uh, on people. You have to, uh, if, if there's going to be some like heightened emotionality, right? Uh, someone has to be in control and it, it should probably be the more senior member of the dyad uh, dyad for sure, which, which, you know, who tries to be, that both Yoda and uh, and Obi Wan Kenobi, right, Mark? Yes, yes, they do. Um, and do they succeed? It mostly yes. But where I want to get this, I guess, the last part of this conversation too. Uh, by the end, is the extent to which their advice truly is really sound all the way through, or if Luke's final step of mastery is to reject their advice and to, to, to in a certain way. Um, so let, let's at least start with the basics and. Um, at least with Obi-Wan, we see so little of the actual mentorship going on in episode four because, um, of course, Obi-Wan dies um, and then, you know, passes off the mentoring baton to Yoda, who overall is that kind of nurturing um, uh, uh, nurturing mentor who pushes Luke in all the right directions, um, allows him to fail, um, and then constructively builds him back up. Um, most notably, right, with like lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp uh, to, to, to show him, to demonstrate the power of the force, but also like letting him fail in the cave and and, and having that constru- constructive moment. Although I guess it's debatable if it actually worked or not. Um, so I guess I'll put that out there as a starting point, right? Like, you know, is Yoda, uh, at least like for the most of the sequences on Dagobah, is that a good example of the, the positive mentorship that we've been modeling out here? You know, I don't know, Matt, you want to go ahead? Well, yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Like, because it is a little bit of like the take the pebble out of my hand um, sort of uh, sort of style of mentorship, right? With with sort of riddles, you know, um, I had a. Uh, I had a meditation teacher who once tried to explain how uh, the Zen tradition teaches meditation by uh, by not giving you any instructions and letting you do everything that isn't meditation and then gradually arriving at meditation on your own. And that, 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 that like uh, that um, class two of woodworking. How long does that one go for? <laughs> and, um, the whole, uh, you know, and that like the the uh, the Theravada, you know, Vipassana meditation meditation tradition um tries to uh yeah tries to maybe provide a little more positive uh uh instruction um at the outset and actually that's that's an interesting dichotomy between obi-wan and and yoda right because obi-wan is the sort of first lessons 
right? Where he's, uh, where he's just kind of learning, uh, learning the ropes, right? Like he's, he's what? He's not, um, yeah, he's, you know, an entry level Jedi, right? And yeah. he's getting his first, his first couple promotions, you know, from like junior Jedi analyst to, uh, you know, one or two of the next, uh, one or two of the next, the next pieces. And then, um, uh, then, then, you know, Yoda is the management training program, right? Where they, they take you to a big offsite and they tell you that, uh, what got you here won't get you there. And that, uh, that that's, uh, right. So it's, it's, they're two different modes of learning, I guess, is what, what I'm arriving at. Two different goals of, of training or mentorship. Um, I don't know, Pete, were you, was that the direction yeah. you were thinking or a different? I, I had a, I had a similar idea, but a different axis. Cause I was thinking also about, if, if I were to give advice to any mentor, it's don't yell, right? Like it's not, it's not good. It's not a good idea. Um, but at the same time, uh, as you sort of mentioned, yelling in and of itself doesn't remove the value from a mentorship relationship. And I would say that one thing I definitely experienced as my level of skill in a, in a topic kind of increased is that uh, in any sort of teacher or mentorship relationship, there's a certain amount of this person has the specific skills and knowledge for the thing that I want to do or become, and that therefore I need to listen to this person. Versus this person has the various skills and knowledge to be effective at imparting that into me, and therefore they are like a good teacher or a good mentor. And those two things are desired. You ideally you desire both of them. I think it's common in these days to feel entitled to both of them, and to when you encounter somebody who gives you one but not the other, to react with like rage and disappointment. Uh, as in like this person was a good teacher, but they didn't know anything or like this person, this person is so smart. They were such a jerk. And it's, and it's just like, you know, one star, one star. Um, when I, it's like, I don't think that skills, um, are so plentiful. And this kind of knowledge is so widespread in all different sorts of specialities where you should necessarily expect that at the top of the mountain, you're going to meet somebody who is both very knowledgeable and very nice. Uh, and although it would be good advice for that person to be both, there's no guarantee that that person is going to get or take that advice. And in your situation, as we've talked about with this sort of homeless Highlander, no mentor at all is kind of worse than having. Again, we said, well, is having the wrong mentor worse than having no mentor at all? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. But the point being that it seems to be two skill sets. And it's ironic because. In the in Star Wars, at least in the first movie, in the original trilogy, Yoda is positioned as the better teacher than Obi-Wan because Obi-Wan screwed up with Anakin and uh, and Yoda didn't screw up with Obi-Wan because because it's it's sort of hinted at in the first trilogy that Yoda taught Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan taught uh, Anakin. And of course, we learn from the uh, from the the uh, documentary that is. The Phantom Menace that Obi-Wan actually learned from Qui-Gon Jinn and not from Yoda and Yoda's involvement in Obi-Wan's upbringing was like not that direct. And so thus, like Obi-Wan talking familiarly with Yoda and Empire Strikes Back and Retur- is not necessarily like reflecting a, a student master relationship so much. But anyway, putting that all that aside, you would expect Obi-Wan to be the better teacher because Obi-Wan has the better soft teaching skills. He is more able to infer into into Luke uh or in part into Luke, a sense of wonder at the Force, that he should learn about it, that he should be excited about it, that the Force can do cool stuff, and that he can do cool stuff with the Force, and also that the idea of, not just that, but the idea of the universe that comes packaged, 
you know, like the whole Ramirez, don't get your head chopped, don't get your head chopped off, but chop other people's heads, like very elegant explanation of the world. Like it all comes together. And Obi-Wan doesn't just depart in Luke a love of the force as a means to an end, but a love of the force as a sort of cosmological notion. And he does this because he's an effective teacher. And yet Obi-Wan is still the worst teacher than Yoda because he doesn't know enough about the force to prepare students to confront the dark side. And so it's it's a it's an interesting paradigm there because you got to go to Yoda, even though Yoda's kind of a jerk and Yoda will yell at you and you're going to give Yoda a one star review on Yelp for being a bad Jedi master because he was mean to you. Uh, but you know what? If you don't go to Yoda, you're going to fall to the dark side because Yoda knows things that Obi-Wan doesn't. And how much of that is a reflection of reality and how much of that is a fantasy of curmudgeons who want to be respected? Right? Like It's like, you know, I actually know things that those nice people don't know and they won't tell you the truth. Right. But the idea that like Yoda on being on Dagobah, where the dark side is present, where the cave is a thing, is important uh, to Luke. Right. And ideally, if Yoda were at his own office, he would have an even better setup. Although, of course, we learn in the documentary that is Attack of the Clones that, you know, Yoda tends to travel a lot. Um, But at any rate, uh, do you see what I'm I'm saying about this in terms of like the sort of soft skills versus I want to say soft skills versus hard skills, but sort of like. Uh, the sort of meta teaching skills and the meta mentorship skills versus the specific sort of expertise and the one thing that you're trying to impart to your student is kind of an interesting tension. Like Father Bob, uh, would, there's a certain point in which Father Bob can't really teach us anymore. And it probably starts when clothes start coming off, right? Like, as in like, there's certain things about our life that are not the same as the life of a Catholic priest that we would not necessarily look to do all the same things that Father Bob did and make all the same choices. And he wouldn't necessarily expect us to make the same choices that he made, right? But he has the meta soft teaching skills to import on us a kind of love of life and a love of like love and in a sort of uh, spiritual way and these sort of spiritual concepts so that when we go looking out in the world for somebody who's a little bit closer, because I don't think Father Bob ever thought we were going to be priests. I mean, I hate to break it to you guys, but I don't think that was the case. Uh, maybe some people. I don't know. I mean, what do you think about that? I don't want to I don't mean to like make it personal, but it's like what this goes back to this idea of like it's more complicated when a mentor doesn't want you to be them and expects you to be somebody else. And that can be bad or that can be good, I guess, uh, is sort of what I'm turning around on. Well, right I, now. I'm going to take a cop out answer and say that he wanted us to be leaders like he okay. was a leader. Yeah. But that, I mean, without necessarily getting into to the specifics of that, yeah, particular, you can let that question float because it's well, all to, to, the, about to that particular yeah. relationship. But I, I think that, like, I, I because I couldn't, I wouldn't presume to speak for him. But what I, what I think is that, like. I think that there are different, I think that there are different levels of this and they happen, they're appropriate at different points in your development and they're appropriate at, at different times. That is to say, there's no kind of, there's no single one right way for all circumstances because mentoring always happens in, in the context of a particular human relationship and in the context of a particular set of circumstances, an organization or a life situation or, or something like that. Right. And that like, um, uh, one thing that Father Bob actually talked about was sort of, cause he, you know, was interested in sort of moral education, right? And that, that talked about sort of fundamental option, you know, that, uh, life is not, you can't really get a yes or no checklist for everything that you're going to, 
encounter in life. You know what I mean? Like, should I, uh, I don't know, should, should I order the everything bagel or the onion bagel, right? Should I order uh, uh, garlic and chive cream cheese or just regular cream cheese, right? Like, you can't, uh, even for, for tr- consequential decisions as opposed to trivial ones, you can't just sort of game them all out, you know, and get the religiously correct answers um, to to all of them. But what you can do is kind of set a fundamental direction, a sort of fundamental option. You orient yourself in a particular way um, towards, you know, your idea of the good, towards your values and and what you are. And then, you know, at least when you walk, your feet are, are broadly speaking, pointed in the right direction. Um, I think that that, that that, like, is a better model for, for moral education than, you know, uh, what, you know, what to do, how, to, how to survive in, in a marriage or something like that, which, yeah. uh, you know, uh, which, the, the, though, though they try, the Catholic hierarchy mm-hmm. should, should mm-hmm. probably pretty much shut up about. So let, let me try to apply that to the Obi-Wan and Yoda relationship with Luke in that uh, what I was referring to earlier about how Luke kind of you know has to fight his own way at the end uh, and in a certain way uh, reject uh, the teachings uh, or at least the direction he was provided. So what you're saying is that uh, what the, the mentor should be doing ideally is, is giving that sort of moral orientation, like helping create a moral compass uh, for the hero, um, for, for, the, for the mentee, for the student. Um, but then when it comes down to the specific instructions about how to execute and what steps to take, that is a, is a harder thing to do and often just, just is impossible. Um, I would equate that then to essentially what Yoda and Obi-Wan teach Luke is essentially the ways of the force, what it means to be on the light side of the force. But then the marching, specific marching steps that they gave him, particularly in Return of the Jedi, was at least you could interpret it to be you have to go and kill or at least like – you know, uh, overthrow uh, Darth Vader and the Emperor to restore order to the galaxy. Um, That's not what they like, say, they, though. No, they don't say that, but they say that you must confront. Uh, they, the implication is that you have to go and like, defeat them in laser battle, laser, laser sword battle. Is that the implication? Um, that's what I always, at least like as the audience is being brought along in the story, that's how you interpret it. But we see at the end where Luke throws his, his lightsaber away and says, I'm a Jedi Knight, like my father, that uh, it, it at least subverts expectation in that way. Yeah. I guess that like, what's really op- open is like what exactly were, were the marching orders um, that, that Luke and Obi-Wan, Luke and, sorry, Yoda and Obi-Wan give at Return of the, like, the end of the first act of Return of the Jedi. Do, right. do, do, you, do you feel like uh, it's, it's clear or... Uh, I don't think it's clear exactly what he means, and I think Yoda would have explained it better if he weren't dying. Um, <laughs> and I think that's part of the point. But I always thought that – well, I, I see what you're saying because I think that we are supposed to believe, at least in part, that there is a suggestion here that Luke needs to fight Darth Vader. But I think it, even without knowing what happens at the end of the story, when he says you're not going to be a Jedi until you confront Vader – it's interesting, right? Because what are the stakes? The stakes are not save the galaxy. The stakes are not balance the force. The stakes are not like save your friends. In fact, Yoda is pretty clear that Luke should let his friends die. Uh, Yoda doesn't think that Luke letting his friends live is important. Uh, Luke, Yoda is primarily con- Yoda in the original trilogy. Is, there's a discontinuity with him in the uh, prequels, or maybe there isn't. But like Yoda in the original trilogy is more spiritual and and sees a higher purpose than the kind of material victory over the empire. 
he is willing to let the the uh, he's willing to let the friends die. He's willing to let the battles be lost. He's willing to let the Death Star do its thing because the the way of the Jedi does is not concerned with these sorts of worldly situations. And but the idea that like why does Luke need to go confront Vader? Because if he doesn't confront Vader, he can't be a Jedi. Okay, well what does that mean, right? And uh, and I guess when he says the 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 statement the film makes, I guess is. When Luke says, I'm a Jedi like my father before me, and you know, you can't you can't turn me to the dark side, that's the kind of moment where he's like, now he's a Jedi. He's been dressing up like a Jedi for the whole movie, but like now he's a Jedi because he's realized that uh that it's about conviction and it's about uh, you know, kind of this confidence in the your sort of connection to the universe, and it isn't about violence and it isn't about power. Uh, and and that only then now it's funny because then you become a Jedi. OK, now you're a Jedi. Now you get to go around and hit people with a lightsaber and do aggressive negotiation and stuff. Right. But it's like um, in terms of a mentorship, this goes back to what we've talked about. Is the mentor looking to craft you into something that will do something for them? Or is the mentor looking to craft you into something that will do something for you? And I think that Yoda ultimately, for all of his flaws, has the improvement of Luke as his top priority. He wants Luke to become a Jedi. He wants Luke to make the next steps in the Force. And and granted, he cares a lot about the Force more than he cares about the universe. But Luke is at the center of it, even when he's mad. Um, I don't know. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I, I'd add to what you say. Is the mentor interested in the improvement of themselves or are they interested in the improvement of you? But w- one of the things psychoanalysis would propose is that it's very, very hard to tell the difference between those two things, right? Yeah. For, for, for either person in the relationship, right? Because very often, and if you, you know, if you ever, you know, if you ever have children or if you ever have uh, proteges or something like that, or, or if you ever, uh, carve the, the ideal partner that you want to bone out of marble and, and they come to life, right? Like, uh, it's very easy. It's so easy to, to fool yourself. And if, if, um, um, Adam Phillips said this, if the best thing we do as people is take care of each other, uh, the worst thing we do is not to fail to take care of each other. It's to pretend to take care of each other where we're actually not taking care of each yeah. other. And it's so, it's so easy. I could give, I mean, from my own life, I could give you nothing but, nothing but examples. I mean, for God's sake, I worked in entertainment. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, of relationships where that, where that was the case. But I think a lot of this might be best left as an exercise for, uh, for the listeners. So we would love to hear, um, anything interesting or pertinent, anything you care to share as a story from your own life about, uh, relationships with mentors, about, uh, you know, um, great mentors, great teachers, uh, terrible mentors, terrible teachers in, in film or stories. Um, we'd love to hear anything about that. You can email us, email us a podcast at overthinking thinkingit.com we get all of those and uh and we might read a couple out on the air if that's okay with you uh, or you can join the conversation in the comments on the show notes just go to overthinkingit.com and and uh, click on the title of this episode and you will uh find a place where you can add a comment there down at the bottom thanks very much for listening and thanks very much to uh pete and mark for um uh podcasting with me thanks very much guys um, the, Thank you. Our our, uh, our best wishes really do go out to Bob Loin and uh, you know to to uh, 
um, to all the people who he touched over his uh, his years of service and and continues to. He's still with us. He's he's still the still the guy. Um, and we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, why don't you visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. chop your head off and i chop your head off and i have won the highlander game i am ceo of highlander inc mark 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 you won the prize hooray why did i win why did you win because you chopped everybody's heads off just like you were told to hooray what did i win you won 25 years in a federal correctional institution (laughs) for transporting (laughs) knives across state lines without a (laughs) permit